You're listening to the On Her Majesty's Secret Podcast production of The Digital 007, a look back at James Bond in video games. thousand to 2010 hello and welcome to the digital 007 a look back at james bond in video games of course brought to you by on her majesty's secret podcast and our fine patreon sponsors i'm jared albrecht the yard sale artist aka death probe and i will be taking you through this journey through the decades to look at all the various incarnations of james bond in video games Let me tell you how this is generally going to work. I will give you some basic information on each game, and we're more interested in hearing from people who have played the games along the way. So wherever possible, I was out there hitting those internets, finding our listeners, our friends, people who rally around the show over at Twitter at OHMSPod, and I'm catching these folks and I'm talking to them about their James Bond video game experiences. So there's going to be a lot of that thrown in here. We're really just going to be looking at the fun facts, going through the timeline, and getting those interesting experiences from our very listeners. This has been an absolute blast to put together, so let me not waste any more time and get straight to our first game. Let's start with the year 2000. Year 2000, Pierce Brosnan was riding high as James Bond 007 in the cinemas, and it would be a good year for James Bond video game fans because 2000 would see the release of two games, the first of which, The World is Not Enough. Ever wonder what it's like to be 007? to a game platform near you. The World is Not Enough was made by EA Games. They are going to hold the license for quite a while on the James Bond video game universe. The World is Not Enough was available on PlayStation N64 and Game Boy Color a little later on in 2001, but we're going to focus mainly on the PlayStation and N64 versions. Those versions are first-person shooters. The Game Boy Color version that would come later was a top-down adventure game. And the weird thing about it is, no matter whether we're talking about the PlayStation, the N64, or the Game Boy Color, all three of these games are radically different from one another. This is because they all had different developers working on the game. So it's definitely worth your time, if you want to play all the Bond games, to play each version of The World is Not Enough, regardless of whether it's on PS1 and 64 or Game Boy Color, because they're all different. However, if you want to cut to the chase and play what is widely considered the best of all of them, 
I would definitely recommend the one on the N64. And speaking of the N64 version, let's hear from Michael from Urbana. All right, it's the year 2000. I'm heavily into James Bond at this point. A big fan of the Pierce Brosnan movies. Later down the road, more of a Daniel Craig, Timothy Dalton guy. But anyway, I'm also a gamer at this point. And I really enjoyed the GoldenEye 007 game from Nintendo 64. I got the Tomorrow Never Dies PlayStation game a couple years later for Christmas. Big disappointment. I noticed it was coming out on Nintendo 64 and PlayStation at the time. Since I was so disappointed with Tomorrow Never Dies on the PlayStation, and kind of hearing that it was more like GoldenEye, I decided to go with the Nintendo 64 version. This was released about the time of my birthday, which was November 20th, but actually it got released about a month earlier. Not exactly sure if I got this around my birthday or Christmas. I know it was around that time. It came in the blue cartridge. I popped it in. Notice it was like GoldenEye, except the fact that this time, that they were speaking this time, and around this time, I don't think the voice dialogue stuff was as good in video games at that time. It was a lot of kind of your dodgy Resident Evil type of stuff, bad acting. Bond kind of doesn't sound quite like Brosnan, a little bit. I retrieved the money. No doubt Sir Robert will be pleased to see it again. I didn't come just for the money. The report you sold King was stolen from an MI6 agent who was killed for it. I want to know who killed him. I'm just a middleman. Take the money. Your last chance. Give me a name. You still threaten me. Even without your weapon? Graphics are still kind of at that uh, stage where it's kind of the 3D transitioning was still uh, at that time. It follows the film pretty closely. It's not as good as the film in some respects, like the opening sequence where Bond, you know, jumps out with the suitcase from the window. Uh, That's not in the Nintendo 64 game. He actually walks out of the bank, which was kind of disappointing a little bit. And it seems like this opening sequence is It was kind of dragged out in the film, I thought. It gets dragged out even longer. There's like a subway sequence in it. You're chasing after the cigar girl. Catching up to her is not as exciting. They don't even do the boat chase. I think it's just like a quick dialogue kind of cutscene that they show. You don't even get to do a level with that. There is a cool sneaking around level in the Electra's Villa stage. I kind of like that. That's kind of a standout level for me. The game is definitely not as good as GoldenEye. Doing this documentary, talking about I kind of had to go back and watch gameplay footage, so I guess the game in the end didn't leave a long-lasting memory. I kind of have more memories playing the multiplayer because I kind of think back to when I was playing it with my best friend Justin. We'd be playing multiplayer and listening to Led Zeppelin and stuff like that and going on tangents about stuff. And I kind of remember that more than I do actually doing the single player mode. And this was kind of around the time where the N64 was kind of transitioning out. It was a move to PlayStation 2. 
which I started to get more excited about game-wise. This game kind of represents a transition point from that. This game is kind of more better use of its multiplayer than it is a single game. There's some standout things in the single game, like you get to do a little more sneaking around than you did in GoldenEye. You got the dialogue, which you can actually hear this time. You don't have to read it, which is a plus. Uh, There's not as many missions where the person that you have to protect is getting shot at a lot and you have to repeat the level over and over again. Multiplayer is where it really shines, though, because I can actually go back and think about like all the fond memories I had just hanging out with my friend, just talking. And I kind of remember that more than I do the actual game. But in the end, it's a it was an enjoyable game at the time. If you can find it for cheap, I would check it out. I wouldn't spend more than 15 bucks on it, but I hope you enjoy. Our old friend Eric from Philly also enjoyed The World Is Not Enough on N64. Let's check in with his thoughts. Yeah, The World Is Not Enough, I played that on the N64. The movie came out, I know, in 99, but it was either 99 or 2000 when the game came out. That's my first Bond game since I really kind of considered the dossier kind of more informational, but that was like my first Bond video game that I was playing. And I remember I got that from a Toys R Us and I was in high school, yeah, ninth grade. And I had a job working for one of the libraries in Philly. And so after I got paid one day, asked my mom to take me to Toys R Us and I went up there and got it. Well, first I tried to buy it, but then I couldn't buy it because I guess I looked too young at the time. My mother was sitting in the car. I had to go back to the car to get my mother to come into Toys R Us and buy it. And I always remember her telling the cashier, because the cashier was like, well, you know, we can't have under a certain age or whatever buying the game. I can't remember if it was rated like M for Mature or anything like that. I can't remember. But she was like, she was like, "Uh, sir, this boy has seen every James Bond movie ever. So like, trust me, I'm quite sure that whatever is in this game can't be any more appropriate or inappropriate based on the movies and he's seen all the movies so i got that and i wasn't never much of a multiplayer person i know goldeneye the big thing was the multiplayer and i don't really recall anyone ever talking about the world is not enough multiplayer but i was always just impressed just with it by capturing the vibe of the movie um i always remember one of my favorite parts of the game is and it was one of my favorite parts of the movie as well, the scene in the snow, Bond and Electra. So for some reason, whenever I think of that game, I always think of that particular area in the game. Just I just thought that they captured it well. And the N64 wasn't the most powerful machine. You know, the PlayStation would still do some things better than it. But that was just one that always stuck out to me. And I remember as I got older and, you know, I got newer systems and stuff like that, my N64 used to leave it at my grandmother's house. So then whenever I would come over there, there was just something that I could play. And that was one that I always seemed to go back to. And and the thing is, I don't even remember if I ever actually completed it. Like I said, that snow level was one that always stands out. For some reason, I see Bob holding his gun. And for some reason, it seemed like the N64 really captured the reflection of the gun. Like I said, it's just a weird part of it to focus on, but it's the one thing that always seemed to... uh, stand out to me and sadly i lost it along with my n64 
after my grandmother died, someone broke into our house and stole my N64 and stole all my games for my N64, with the exception of Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time. It was so weird. It was the only game with all the other games, but it was the only game that they didn't steal. And yeah, it's one of those things. I mean, now that, you know, Nintendo has the Switch, there's so many older games I kind of wish they could bring back so that people could experience it again. I know GoldenEye was the king then, and I believe World is Not Enough was developed by EA. GoldenEye was rare. But World is Not Enough was still a solid, at least for the single player, which is all I could speak to, first-person shooter. I would probably say it's definitely a little underrated as far as Bond games go. And now to discuss The World Is Not Enough on PlayStation 1 and a bit about the Game Boy Advance version, we have Burnsy NYY from YouTube. I honestly grew up with The World Is Not Enough on Nintendo 64. I was born in 99, so GoldenEye, World Is Not Enough, I always had those at my disposal. But when I was in college, I had a somewhat disposable income because I was working at the bar on campus. When I was doing that, I remembered there was a Bond game on the PlayStation 1 I never played. So I looked up Bond PlayStation 1 games. The world is not enough. And I said, okay. I called my local game store because on my way to my internship, about twice a week that semester, I would pass it. So I called them up on like a Saturday night before my shift at the bar. And I asked, do you guys have a copy of The World is Not Enough on PlayStation? Originally, they were like, we never heard of it. But then uh, one guy overheard it because they were on speaker and he was like, wait, I think we have a copy of it somewhere. So they go through the catalog on the computer and I just hear across the store. Yeah, we got it. It's four dollars. Do you want us to hold it for you? Like, yes, please. (laughs) So I picked it up that Monday when I went to my internship. I waited a couple weeks before I actually played it because it was right before Thanksgiving and it was a busy time in the semester. So I got home, played it on my PS3. I beat it in about two sittings. But I remember I remember thinking, like, this is so weird, but I love it in like in a weird way, because I definitely prefer the 64 version. But as its own game, the PS1 version is really good. The one thing that kind of weirds me out, though, is that it's the exact same control scheme as Tomorrow Never Dies on the PS1. And that's a third person shooter. So that weirded me out. Then another thing was I thought the game glitched at one point because during the uh, I was about to call it the docks, but it's not the docks, it's the caviar factory. At the end of the level, you have to turn the valve like in the movie, grab the flare gun and shoot. I thought the game glitched because I kept shooting the flare gun at it, but apparently it was timed, I think. So I had to keep doing the mission over again, but I I didn't really have to keep doing the mission over again. I just had to keep turning the valve and then running back. That took about an hour or two to figure out. And I think that level was actually pretty difficult anyway. <laughs> I also remember at the very end of the game, the nuclear submission, you had to go through the nuclear reactor and you were losing health as you went through it. It got to a point where I think I spent 30 minutes on that mission and I put it on pause, put down the controller. I looked up on my phone just to walk through at the end of the mission. And I said, you know what? I put too much time into this. I'm not dying now to do this level over again. And I know at least in the nineties, I wouldn't have been able to do that. Hell, even early two thousands, I wouldn't have been able to do that, but that was my mentality with it. It was definitely a game I could see myself playing again, but not as much as, as the 64 version. And I remember one of the points was something I remember about the box art. I have a complete in box copy of all three versions of the game. 
And my 64 copy, it's incredibly washed out, the box. The Game Boy copy, I got at a used rental store when they were going out of business. Uh, that box is in terrible shape. But the PS1 version, I can say, had the best colors, <laughs> if that makes sense. Even though it was just the instruction manual. But yeah, I honestly think just as someone who's played all the games, I think the PS1 version of The World Is Not Enough had a much bigger influence on Agent Under Fire than the 64 version. And I guess that makes sense because I felt like the 64 World Is Not Enough had a bigger impact on Nightfire. They were both Eurocom, I believe. I'm not sure if Eurocom did Agent Under Fire. And that was just something I looked up when I was writing scripts for my reviews. So, yeah, I remember the Game Boy game just being a pain in the ass. It was fun. It was a pain in the ass. <laughs> I think I picked up the Game Boy game. Again, there was a movie rental store in my town that was going out of business. I think I was about 12. And I remember it was on the shelf, in the box. I'd never seen a Game Boy Color game in the box. I was 12. I bought it. I played it. Mm-mm. It is a fun game in its own way. But as someone who just wanted to pick up a Bond game and figured, hey, it's a Bond game, it'll be fun. Like, I can shoot things and just do whatever I want. No, no. If anyone out there's ever played the Metal Gear Solid Game Boy Color game, I remember it playing a lot like that. But even Metal Gear Solid, it felt weird on the Game Boy because it's Metal Gear Solid. But I feel like the mechanics worked better in Metal Gear than they did in The World Is Not Enough. Because in The World Is Not Enough, they had the same problem I felt like they had with Link's Awakening on the Game Boy on the original. Where you have two buttons, deal. <laughs> yeah, so I guess in the end, my overall thoughts of the PlayStation version, actually, I even said it in my review of the 64 game on my YouTube channel. The PS1 game, it's a fantastic substitute if you have a PlayStation 1 and you love the movie, because a lot of the scenes in the game are just ripped right from the movie. Not like the 64 game where they just kind of mix and match, I thought, when I played through it. Still fun games, but the PS1 version is more for like the diehard I want to watch the movie, but I can't right now. So that's the best you can do with it. And for the Game Boy game, I would say at the end of the day, the Game Boy game, you have a Game Boy, you didn't have James Bond 007 on the normal Game Boy, or everything or nothing on the Game Boy Advance, or I guess even Nightfire. I'm not a big fan of Nightfire on the Game Boy Advance, but that's just me. But if you really wanted your Bond fix on the go, it worked. It was just incredibly difficult. So yeah, a lot of ground to cover on The World Is Not Enough, and it's three very different games. But for now, let's leave The World Is Not Enough and pay a little attention to the other James Bond game that came out in 2000. A little game that was a PlayStation 1 exclusive called 007 Racing. Ever wonder what it's like to be 007? Do you have the time? Certainly. Wrong one. It's not. Oh! Oh, God. Need more practice? Ready, 007 Racing was also produced by EA Games, and like I said, it is a PlayStation 1 exclusive. It is a third-person driving adventure game. The title is a little bit tricky because there's not really any racing going on. It's more like drive to the objective, survive to this point, to that point, go on these different missions. So basically, it's more like a third-person adventure game where you're just in a car the whole time. 
And our old friend Frank McNeely is back to talk about a little 007 racing. He's at GoldenEye97 on Twitter, and he's got some good insights and some good things to say about 007 racing. Let's give it a listen. It's funny. One of the questions you asked me about was kind of about owning 007 racing, to be honest. I've never owned 007 Racing, but I've played it several times. And I mean, I enjoyed it. I think what I was most thrilled about with the game was the level where you're driving the GoldenEye car, the BMW Z3, and it had gadgets. Because the one letdown about the GoldenEye movie was Q talked about Stinger missiles behind the headlights, and we never saw it. So moments like that, I mentioned this before, but the game's controls were really clunky, as most PlayStation games were so what made the game hard was figuring out the controls another part that stuck out to me was i think there's a level in new york where bond's driving a chevy caprice with jack wade talking on the radio and like the car's rigged to blow i think and you have to like drive at a certain speed at a couple of times since it's in new york you can see the twin towers in the background and playing that i was just like man this game is just like captured in such a specific time because of The game literally came out a year before 9-11. So there are little interesting parts like that. What I really like about 007 Racing is it set a precedent. So the games that followed... Now, I think Tomorrow Never Dies might have had a driving level. And then, of course, GoldenEye 64, you could drive the tank. But I think 007 Racing was really the first game that widely looked at driving Bond cars with Bond gadgets. And I think the following four games, so Agent Under Fire... Nightfire, Everything or Nothing, and then From Russia with Love all had driving levels where you drove a Bond car that had gadgets, which I thought was a fantastic staple to include in those games. And even though GoldenEye 64 is like going to be number one for me no matter what, the fact that those four games in the early 2000s included at least one or two driving levels, they all stand out for that reason. And that's because of, I think, 007 Racing is because... They made that happen. They kind of incorporated that with the games that follow. So that's why, again, even though 007 Racing itself isn't the best Bond game, it did something that made other games that much better. Frank definitely makes an interesting point in that with this focus on driving for 007 Racing, there may have been some really good influence for some games to come. And speaking of games to come, we have finished the year 2000, and it's time to move to the year of 2001. (music) 2001 would yield us just one game, but it is a pretty well-thought-of game. That game, Agent Under Fire. Seven, how did you come to ruin this little beauty? And where exactly is the rest of this? And I suppose you can explain this. Oh, James. It's not easy being bombed on Nintendo GameCube, Xbox, and PlayStation 2. Ready T for teen. 
Agent Under Fire was another EA production. It was available on the PS2, the GameCube, and the Xbox. It is a first-person adventure-style game. And again, pretty well thought of in the Bond community. This ushered in the next generation of gaming systems. We have moved on from the PlayStation 1 and the N64, and now we are in the PS2, GameCube, Xbox era of gaming. So this would be the first Bond game to be available on those new systems. And let's see what friend of the show, Caleb Smith, has to say about it. Being a Bond fan ever since GoldenEye hit theaters, I was actually pretty young. And so came out with GoldenEye and then followed up with Tomorrow Never Dies and The World's Not Enough. I played those games. Agent Under Fire was really the follow-up to GoldenEye to me. Got it for PS2, a birthday present. My birthday is in early November, and it came out, I think it was like middle or a week before Thanksgiving. My mom took me to the store. She's like, all right, I know you want this. This is kind of a late birthday present. I was like, all right, yeah. And immediately it's like, all right, we got to go home. I got to play this now. It's actually funny because this was like the first game that my mom really paid attention to. She was used to like, you know, Super Mario Brothers. And she played that when she was younger. You know, so she was kind of used to that type of game. Didn't really understand that games now were at a point of being more cinematic. You know, with cutscenes, And so she ended up watching me and she's like, oh, this is like a movie. And I'm like, oh, I know it's great, right? It's like my own personal Bond adventure. So she ended up watching the whole thing from start to finish. It was like, oh, okay, are you going to play today? You know, I'd come home from school. Are you going to play? Yeah, let's go. Do you have homework? Nah, don't worry about it. Okay, let's go play James Bond. Yeah, and so it's kind of funny because that continued on with games into the future. Any cinematic game, she'd be like, oh, okay, let's let's start watching that. So this was the one that jump-started that. The packaging was pretty standard PlayStation 2 box. I think there was probably a booklet inside. It always kind of felt... Like it was a mix of a Roger Moore and a Pierce Brosnan movie to me. Because it's a little outlandish, you know, like the story has the cloning aspect and, oh, and then it kind of gallivants around, you know, different areas. So I felt it did a great job at capturing the essence of Bond. So I really enjoyed that aspect. My favorite part, I got to say the gunplay was great, but my favorite part was driving the BMW shooting the missiles from it, zipping around. Like, I think it's the second or third mission in. You get a chase after uh, Carla the Jackal, which I've always gotten a kick out of. I'll I'll come back to that. But yeah, just zipping around the city, shooting missiles, blowing cars up. It was a blast. And it's kind of funny. I look back on it. And for a game that came out in 2001, it looks pretty darn good. I kind of did a little follow-up on it. It looks still pretty good, despite coming back, you know, almost 20 years now. And the gameplay still holds up fairly well. I think the kind of expansive city and being able to drive around, that was a blast. That was one of my favorite things. And along with, so I'll kind of dive back into Carla the Jackal. I always kind of found that interesting because I saw I'm kind of an espionage spy nerd, even kind of like the real life stuff. So I like all the movies, you know, James Bond, Mission Impossible, et cetera, right? Then I kind of dive into the real nitty gritty world of espionage in real life. And it's kind of like based off of Carlos the Jackal. I've always found that connection interesting. It's like Bond spin on Carlos the Jackal. So I always liked that. Even as a kid, I, I remember learning about it and I was like, oh, whoa, this is really cool. So I, yeah, I just had a good time. I like that connection. 
it also kind of plays into how Bond stays relevant, you know, in, in the time and it connects to the real world. So I, I thought that was a really nice touch. And then there's those Bond moments, you know, you, you do something flashy and the music plays and it's you feel right into it. <laughs> You know, and it's like, oh, yeah, I'm James Bond. And in a way, I think the time difference between Goldeneye to Agent Under Fire, I think really helped because they were able to do things graphically different. They were able to insert cinematic experience that Goldeneye, while the missions itself, as you were playing, captured the essence of the film. The short, like, you know, three second, four second cutscenes at the beginning of the mission really just like paint the picture of like, oh, here you are in, you know, Siberia going towards the silo and then but this it's like full dialogue it feels so much like a movie so i really loved how i mean i think goldeneye came out in 97 96 97 and it's just amazing at how technology just shot up we're able to you know inject dialogue music and like that real bond music you know it felt classic 007 the cia has come to us for assistance it appears that one of their agents, a Miss Zoe Nightshade, recently sent out a distress signal. Since you are already on location in Hong Kong, we saw this as an opportunity to help out our American friends. Nightshade was investigating a botanical research firm known as Identicon, headed by a man named Nigel Block. The CIA believes that Identicon is a front for a massive smuggling ring dealing in biological weapons. In Nightshade's last report, she informed us that Identicon was taking considerable measures to transport and to protect vials of some unknown substance. Nightshade was to obtain one of their courier cases and have its contents analyzed, but her mission was compromised. You need to retrieve that courier case 007 and rescue Miss Nightshade. Now pay attention. I provided you with a high-tension grapple line I call the Q-Claw. Use this device to latch onto special perforated surfaces in order to pull yourself up to ledges and platforms. You'll also carry the Q-Laser, which emits a powerful beam of coherent light capable of slicing through metal alloys commonly used in locks. And, and so that's really where it kind of feels like that, you know, Roger Moore jumping around, being suave, and then you kind of got the, the new age of Pierce Brosnan. Even the look of James Bond in the game they didn't render him after an actor. I kind of always felt like it's blending Roger Moore and Pierce Brosnan together. Uh, you got the dark hair, but there's something about that face just called back to Roger for me. Still one of the better Bond games. You know, there's so many good moments. So there's just all, it just really packs in all of these moments that feels like a Bond film. And it's almost like the story is so well written and the cutscenes are so well done that you could like piece this together and watch it as a film. I also was a sucker for having the, uh, I think they call it like a P7K because they didn't get the licensings on the name of the gun, but it's modeled after the the P99 that Bond first uses in Tomorrow Never Dies. And I've always been like in love with that gun. So getting to use it for the first time in that game was, you know, super thrilling. And then I can't remember if it was a cheat or if there was an unlock, but then you could turn it gold. And so I always felt like suave running around with a gold pistol and a, a gold suppressor attached. So I, it was pretty funny to, you know, kind of see that. It's like, yeah, that's not realistic, but man, that is very Bond and I love it. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I really loved Agent Under Fire and yeah, it, it stands up even to the test of time. I'd, I'd still dive back into it now. Yeah. 
and with that we are all finished with 2001. The very next year we would see two James Bond video game releases, so let's get to 2002. Two thousand and two would be the fortieth anniversary of the cinematic James Bond, and it would see the release of Die Another Day. Also, it would see the release of two new video games. The first video game that we will discuss from two thousand and two was called 007 Ice Racer. This game was made by a company called Infusio, and it was made for the mobile phone market. Remember those old flip phones and the little games you used to play on them? Well, James Bond got his first flip phone game in 2002 with Ice Racer. It's an action-adventure driving game, and it was released to increase the interest in Die Another Day. You might remember some ice driving in that film. So, without further ado, let's get to a fan-favorite interview on this show. We have Luis from Ivague, Colombia. And if it's odd and obscure, then chances are Luis has played it. So let's get his thoughts on 007 Ice Racer for the mobile phone. Well, my story with the mobile Bond games started uh, with the purchase of a Motorola V3 Racer. I think is the, the correct name. <laughs> and um, I got it pretty much like uh, two or three years after it was released. So uh, it was like 2007, I guess. So Casino Royale was already released. And obviously I was looking for video games to install into the phone. I knew that these phones had uh, Java system and i was looking for them but i couldn't find any because here in colombia purchasing those games was not possible the old games of the brosnan era were no longer available of course and the casino royale one was not available neither because normally the company the phone companies here ask for a subscription fee a monthly subscription fee it was very expensive, and it was mostly aimed to buy ringtones rather than apps. Well, they weren't apps. They were just games and, and stuff. And the most popular games that were available in their catalogs were the puzzle ones, like Tetris and uh, Match 3 games, Bejewel, I remember those. So it was not easy to get the games. So... I had a friend at the university, he had the same phone, but he had been messing around with the, the phone software. He got a kit on the internet to mod his phone, and he asked me if I wanted to do it, and I did it, and it opened a lot of possibilities, so obviously I was looking for the, the One of the first things I did was looking for the phone games. I knew they existed because I, I saw some ads and some information, but I ended up looking for them in a website, uh, I think it's GetJar. I think the, the website is still live, but it's focused on uh, Android apps, uh, some things like that. But at the time, the purpose of the, the website was the games on Java games. So I, I found the James Bond games on GetJar and I installed them. Well, installed them. The memory of my phone was very limited. I couldn't install all the James Bond games at once. So I had to try. And also I had some photos, I had some music, so there was not enough space for everything. So the first game I installed was uh, Ice Racer. 
a nice racer, maybe because of the jailbreaking method or the, the thing that my friend did to my phone, wasn't working very well. Or maybe because the game was uh, old and the phone was new. I don't know. It didn't work well. But I remember that many people had in, in their minds the idea that W7 racing could be kind of replicated on mobile phones, but obviously it, it wasn't the case. I wasn't certain that I wouldn't have this kind of game. It was a little bit disappointing, but not so much in the sense that the movie was quite old at the time I got the phone and I installed the app. So it was just a funny thing. But as I it didn't work very well. I had to obviously erase the files and install the next one that was the Hover Chase. And we will definitely get back with Luis on the Hover Chase game when it comes up momentarily. But first, we have to take a look at the other game that came out in 2002, and that would be Nightfire. I'm sending in 007. Are you game? Absolutely. If you can ride the wave, survive the ice, and save the girl, you're the man for the mission. Let's get down to business. 007 Nightfire. Rated T for teens. In stores November 18th. Nightfire was made by EA. Still holding that license. It was available on the PlayStation 2, the Xbox, the GameCube, the PC, the Mac, and there was a version for the Game Boy Advance. Its main version was a first-person shooter. And Nightfire is interesting because official 007 writer Bruce Firestein was brought in to work on its story. So this is the first time that a James Bond video game is pulling in an actual writer from the James Bond universe. Nightfire... Also, it's the first time that Pierce Brosnan allowed likeness rights, but he did not lend his voice to the game, but he did approve the use of his likeness. Another interesting thing about Nightfire, it is the first Bond game to get its own official James Bond theme song. So Nightfire has its own Bond theme song, which we will give a listen to right now. Don't Let's get into some Nightfire reviews, and I've got some pretty good interviews for you. Let's start with two guys. That's right. I got a double interview here. I've got cousins. They were also roommates. They're also both history majors. They're also both Auburn University graduates. It is Zach and Wynn discussing their memories growing up together with Nightfire. Nightfire. 
007 Nightfire, the game, was the first FPS that I bought for the PlayStation 2 console. And as luck would have it, this is not just, you know, little old Zach rolling up into Electronic Boutique or the video game store. This was in the Blockbuster inside of a Kroger grocery store in my hometown. 007 Nightfire, what would become one of my niche, most cherished childhood nostalgia-packed games, was located on the previously used rentals discounted shelf. So me, being the, I guess, middle school-aged young lad that I was, inspired, had recently watched a few of James Bond films, Roger Moore, Pierce Brosnan, guys I'd you know looked up to and thought were the epitome of cool. I just gravitated towards it, didn't know anything about it, didn't, had never played it before, saw it was on, in the bargain bin and just decided, why not scoop it up? Brought it home, threw it in. I loved it so much. Wynn would come over you know, a few times a, a month or every few weeks or so. His family would come over from Birmingham to Dalton. We'd throw it in the PlayStation 2, and you've got, it's got that classic split-screen shooter style that you just don't see in the current generation of consoles. It's got that beautiful split screen where you can't avoid checking out your opponent's screen to see where they are, where they're setting up their trip mines and things like that. But really, my love for the game is mostly based in the time spent doing the multiplayer. It's got a really healthy multiplayer environment. It's got King of the Hill. It's got Capture the Flag. It's got Deathmatch mode. There's even some you know more specific objective ones like Uplink is one where you have to capture satellites and then those kind of do different stuff. But really, the treat of the game for me lies in the multiplayer. And this was even one of the few games where it was serious enough to where I had to get out the old PlayStation 2 multi-tap for four-player split-screen, late-into-the-night action with the boys on a Friday night or Saturday night. And we would play this for hours. It's got a lot of nice weapons. There's a couple of cheesy little vehicles little remote-controlled tank and a little remote-controlled helicopter where your avatar is standing completely still while you're piloting the <laughs> these machines and just kind of going around so you're a sitting duck. But it's just cutesy little kitsch things like that that just added to the flavor of the game and just really made it a special one for me. So, Went chime in here. I think he yeah, probably man. can... I think to understand my approach to Nightfire, I think we have to understand that Zach and I, though we are cousins, live in a very different sort of households. And this didn't just extend to video games, this extended to, you know, sugary cereals and staying up late and all that sort of stuff. You know, I came from a household where the only sort of access I had to video games was PC games for a long amount of time. And so going over to Zach's house, going over to the cousin's house was sugary cereals to start the morning countless hours of PlayStation 2 and yeah the one that that I definitely gravitated to again because it had such a great multiplayer interface was Nightfire so much so that many years later when I finally got the PS2 this has been about 2003 2004 something like that so about a year after playing it with Zach that was one of the first games that I just absolutely had to have because I had so many fun memories of being able to play all these different Bond characters. I think that was one of the other things that was really great about the multiplayer games was the different amount of characters that you could play. It's not just from, you know, the Nightfire storyline itself, which is very interesting and very intense and everything like that, but also just from classic Bond movies. And that piqued my interest too. I had not really seen a lot of Bond movies up until I started playing Nightfire. So that got me interested in, you know, watching Goldfinger and watching a couple of the Roger Moores and a couple of the Dalton ones. 
they were all just kind of that moment of like, oh, so that's Jaws or oh, so that's Odd Job. That's really great. And of course, you know, some of these characters had certain skills and abilities. Odd Job, of course, had his one shot, one kill hat. <laughs> what was the one? Do you remember back the little fella that was on the multiplayer that was the small squat fella that was basically we just said, okay, nobody can play as him because he's so much smaller than everybody else? I think he's Scaramanga's assistant or something. Uh, Nicknack, that's it. Yeah, Nicknack, yeah. Nick-Nack, yeah. So Nicknack was was unique because he was about half the size of all the other avatars. They were all pretty, you know, pretty much the same size. And of course, here comes Nicknack running around, like scurrying around like a little chipmunk. Yeah. On the-, <laughs> the beautiful thing about Nightfire's multiplayer was we got to a level eventually when I got to the PS2. And I'd, I'd very much be interested in testing this over the next couple of weeks where we were basically at the same level. You know, it, it'd be good, intense matchups. The first couple of times we played, obviously, Zach would kick my butt and everything. But as I got the PS2 and began to play through it, we would get to about the same skill level and you could set the difficulty settings and set very specific elements of the multiplayer computer characters that you'd play as. So, you know, if you wanted to play with Goldfinger or Scaramanga or anything like that, you could set them at certain difficulty levels. You could set them with set in certain prototypes and player types. And so that just made it that much more fun because it wasn't just Zack and Wynn squaring off. It would be Zack and Wynn and then these computer characters that sometimes played just as well as we did or sometimes played much more poorly so we get those easy kills. Whatever the case may be, that made it a lot of fun. Now, I will say, I have a specific memory that I will never forget about this game. Before there was even purchase of the PS2, before there was even purchase of Nightfire, I remember my mom being the mother that she was doing due diligence and checking up with Aunt Robin, Zach's mom, on whether or not this T-level game was acceptable for her 12, 13-year-old son. And the one line that that Aunt Robin had is Aunt Robin kind of rolled her eyes and goes, well, some of the women are very scantily clad in the game. <laughs> and then I'm just like, okay, but like, it, it, there's not blood, mom. You know, I was trying to really, I was right at that T rating where it, every game had to be kind of a battle of, can I get this past my parents or not? And that was the one where I was like, you know, oh, don't worry, mom, I'll run through that level real quick and everything like that. And and that was, that was really, I'll never forget it. Robin just kind of rolling around mentally glad <laughs> well well it's good that they never saw your mom never saw the actual cutscenes from the game because oh, in, in my recent playthrough i think it's about every other mission bond of course has to shoehorn in <laughs> very abruptly and well like the snowmobile scene of course the snowmobile mission right after it it's found out or revealed that aston martin was in the garage just right outside the log cabin all night agent nightshade turns to bond and said was that there all night and Bond, of course, cheekily responds, you looked like you needed some rest. And Nightshade, of course, turns back to Bond and just as cheekily retorts with, well, I don't recall getting much rest last night, James. <laughs> so it was those kinds of classic hooks that tie it so beautifully back to some of the charm and appeal of the actual Bond movies. I'm glad you brought that story up, Wynn, because, yeah, this this game does have its own kind of spicy allure in that way, especially for young lads going through puberty, going to private Christian schools. I mean, that's the razor's edge right there of edge, if you will, at the time for us. So That's right. This, oh, me. this is something that was really enjoyable about, and I'm sure, Zach, you're kind of experiencing this now as you go through the single-player walkthrough. These missions were very much like you kind of got a little bit of everything in these missions, especially that first mission. You could play it any real way that you wanted to. The exchange mission, I guess, is what it was called. You could play it kind of stealth. You could play it using gadgets. You could kind of go in guns a blazing. 
And then, of course, there are, you know, these driving missions. And, you know, there's a couple of them where you're with the Aston Martin that's kind of turns into a submarine. That's a frustrating world to this very day. But there is a lot of variety in these sort of games. This is not just your standard first-person shooter where you move from one level to the next, just firing at will or sneaking around like you would in Splinter Cell and trying not to alert the guards. There's a nice mixture of that throughout all the game, which really gave it that full feeling of the fact that even though this was not a Bond movie, this could have been. From everything from the theme song to the great music, I do want to I do want to give a shout out. And Jared, if you want to intersperse some of this, particularly the Phoenix Fire lobby level. There's some really great music in this video game that makes it feel very authentically Bond. Even if Pierce Brosnan's voice is not in it, his appearance is in it, you feel like you are experiencing James Bond in all these different aspects of it. Yeah, and of course there's the, after the PS2, you know, you pop the disc in, you close the tray. After the PS2 logo pops up, it does have its own special Nightfire opening theme, not quite as long as the normal Bond opening themes, of course, which can get into, you know, three, four minutes. It's about 30, 45 seconds. custom video done for that in the graphics of the time and a nice little jingle it really ties it together and kind of sets you up a really nice intro and it kind of makes you excited to play it makes you excited to kind of see what you're going to be diving into Um, and it feels very authentically bond too which of course is what we're after i did want to bring up because when you had mentioned the different ways to play and i thought one really kind of interesting facet of the game and something that i had forgotten about and was rediscovering as I was doing my playthrough, maps will be laid out in such a way where, oh, you can sneak through this window and come behind a guard. Instead of just shooting him in the head, you can whip out your little car keys stun gun, courtesy of Q, and give him the old razzle-dazzle from behind, and then you unlock a Bond move where a very obvious and large 007 logo comes up and spins around, and you get a nice little catchy jingle. showing that you just completed a signature Bond move, as only he could. And those have been really fun, and it, you are rewarded for doing those because they unlock the multiplayer skins. You can get like golden skin guns that are a little bit stronger for multiplayer and playthrough. The Wolfram PPK can be the upgraded gold version. By doing those Bond moves throughout the game, reaching a certain you know metal ranking at the end of a campaign, that's how you unlock all the fun, kind of cheesy stuff. In the multiplayer, so it kind of rewards going back in, doing the campaign, you know, make you think cleverly, think like James Bond. Piggybacking on what you said about the different styles to play, I thought that was something that this game did really well to balance out just the running through and, and blasting. I couldn't agree more. I, that The minute you said that, I hadn't even thought about that. I hadn't, I hadn't even played this, you know, in, in many, many years, and I could just hear that. But, uh, and of course, see the spinning gold logo, that... That really was special because, yeah, you did. You felt very Bond doing those moves. Like, this was still just right on the cusp of 
online play being really, especially online first-person shooters being really accessible. And so this would translate very, very well if this were retaken in to Bond games in the future. This sort of multi-layered appreciation of these different multiplayer characters made it that much more enjoyable to play again and again and again. The replay value on this was excellent and still is. All these things, all these things and more solidify it in my mind as one of the top James Bonds Certainly of its era, I thought it was kind of a masterclass. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's an insanely fun game. All right, I'm going to chime in with a question. All right. Uh, which one of you is better at this game? Oh. <laughs> it's, it's undoubtedly got to be me, just because... <laughs> oh, <come on. laughs> and now that I've stirred up all kinds of trouble between Zach and Wynn... Let's get another point of view on this wonderful game, Nightfire, this time from our old friend, Caleb. Let's dive into Nightfire. Again, it was really immersive into James Bond, and I loved how they got Pierce Brosnan, or, you know, the look of Pierce Brosnan. So that was a nice touch. You know, it felt even more like a a Brosnan film. I don't think they got him to voice the character. So I, I remember, like... Going to the store, paying, I think, 50 bucks, you know, standard PS2 case. I think I got it for PS2. Yeah, it's 40 or 50. I'm trying to remember how much games were back then, but I don't remember. I think something like 50. But yeah, you know, went straight home, popped it in, fired up, got the controller, started playing, you know, and immediately, if I remember correctly, you start out like in a helicopter and you're providing like sniper support. I thought that was kind of a fun intro to start the game as. But then, you know, you see Brosnan, you're expecting to kind of hear Brosnan's voice. And it's like, oh, it's not Brosnan. The name's Bond. James Bond. But it worked. Like, you know, somehow I got past it, get over the expectations. But I thought actually the voice acting was pretty good. The music was great. I think that this even stepped up from Agent Under Fire. You know, I think it helped that the graphics were a teeny little bit better. And, you know, the cutscenes were still great. Yeah, you know, and it was, it was a little bit more linear, which worked really well. And there was these awesome missions, like when you're escaping Drake's mansion in that weird-looking snowmobile, you know, blasting all the bad guys. So, you know, that was really fun. You get your fill of, you know, you got the Bond girls. If I remember correctly, or at least I don't remember it, I don't remember driving a vehicle. There's a helicopter at the beginning. I, I, you got the snowmobile. I don't remember a car. Yeah, oh, stealth missions. There's the stealth mission where I've never been good at stealth. You know, there's people who like thrive on Metal Gear Solid. I'm like, nah, can't do that. I go guns blazing right in. Yeah, I'm James Bond. Like, you're not sneaking around. I'm blasting away, right? Q equips you with this pretty gnarly little dart gun, you know, you know, knocks the security guards out. But still, it's like, yeah, this ain't my, my cup of tea. But I do appreciate how it helps change the pace in a positive way kind of breaks up it's not just a constant run and gun you know and then they also interject the level where you're you know zipping away escaping on the snowmobile and i thought the story was really well done i liked how i think it's peter mayhew mayhew ends up kind of like trying to turn but then you know the assassins come and get him and so you have that fight and if i remember correctly there's like smoke billowing over and it's kind of hard to see the villain they're coming after you with a a katana and so you're kind of fighting your way it was a nice little mini boss fight speaking of boss fights i can't remember how many times that i almost like threw the controller against the wall 
when it came towards the end and you're fighting, um, if I remember correctly, you fight Akiko first and then Rook, or it might be flip-flop, but either way, fighting Rook, I spent way too long. He was a pain. Like, you had to shoot him a million times, you know, and you had to, like, dodge and, you know, duck behind things. And, oh, man, it was it was a pain. There was some weapon. I'm trying to remember if it was a laser gun that helped or if that's more of the uh, the last level that I'm thinking of when you're up in space. And actually, here's a fun fact about me. I'm not a big fan of Moonraker because I kind of don't like the space aspect, but I really love the space aspect in Nightfire. There's something about it just worked for me. I know it's kind of odd because, you know, not being a huge fan of Moonraker, I, this actually worked. And I don't know if it was just because it was really towards the end, so there wasn't that much space involved. Or granted, I will admit, Moonraker's kind of growing and, and moving up the ranking for me as I, you know, watch it again. And I'm like, oh, okay, this isn't too bad. But yeah, no, Nightfire was great. EA did such a good job creating an immersive experience again. They knocked it out of the park with Age of Fire. They knocked it out of park with this. Actually, the thing that I ended up playing the most was the multiplayer. I had a couple of buddies that lived down the street that come over. And my favorite thing about it is that you could turn bots on. And so there was the like mountainous chalet area where it has like the ski lift carts. And so you could like ride around and go from like the top to the bottom. And then, yeah, and you just turn on the bots. And I think there was like eight bots. And then, you know, PS2 had four slots. So I'd have three other friends come over and play. So it's like we'd create, you know, mini teams of six and we're just duking it out, having a heyday, playing with all the different characters. If I remember correctly, the roster of characters were pretty good. Like, it kind of matched Goldeneye. There was some classic characters that were tossed in there. Yeah, that was a blast. Had a blast playing that. Bots were just awesome. And that was actually, like, my first real multiplayer experience on a grander scale. You know, versus Goldeneye, it's very, like, 1v1 or, you know, 1v4. So it was a little bit smaller scale, which... No shame there. I love GoldenEye multiplayer. I think everybody does. But no, I just, I loved the bots in Nightfire. The AI was pretty solid. It wasn't just lopsided. You're just shooting ducks, you know, or shooting fish in a barrel and they're not fighting back. No, there was, there was some good battles. So I really, I think that's probably ultimately my favorite thing about it. And that will wind us down for the year of 2002. Your next James Bond game would come up the very next year in 2003. <laughs> 2003 would see the return of 007 to those crazy flip phones. This crazy flip phone game was called Hover Chase. It was by Iomo Games, and it was a top-down vehicle driving adventure. And it was based on the pre-title sequence of Die Another Day. So if we're talking crazy flip phone mobile games, I think we all know what that means. Let's hear from Luis from Eva Gay Colombia. Graphically, it's not as good as the Ice Racer. But the simplicity of the game helped it to run smoothly on the phone. And also 
it was more fun. I don't know why, but the, the hover chase, the controls were terrible because you are trying to control a hover vehicle. I don't know because I have never tried once in my life. But according to the audio commentaries on the movies, they say that these vehicles are very difficult to control. So I suppose they tried to replicate experience on a mobile phone. So I, I, I think that I had a firsthand experience with the hover controls. But it was fun. And obviously, it was very simple. The idea was to pass uh, over the mines and try to destroy the enemies. It was a very basic, like, spy hunt clone with the Die Another Day theme. It was very, very fun. I played many hours, but it was a long time ago. So my memories are not so fresh. But I enjoyed the game, so I, I wouldn't hesitate to purchase that if I could have. But as I said before, the, the catalog in my country was not very wide on these kind of games. And the game was already old, so probably it wasn't listed. If it was listed, I didn't know. <laughs> probably it was listed at the time it was released. But I didn't have a, a Java-enabled phone for the, those days. Well, it's good to know that we can always count on our good friend Luis from Colombia with those obscure games. So you know he's going to be back for an interview later on. But that is the end of 2003, and it will bring us to 2004. Two thousand and four saw the release of two James Bond games on major consoles. No more of this phone game stuff. We're talking major home consoles. Two games released in two thousand and four. As we all anxiously wait to find out who will be the new Bond. Interestingly enough, the first game we're going to talk about from two thousand and four is Everything or Nothing. Blockbuster, 007, everything or nothing. Read a T for T. Everything or Nothing was made by EA. It was available on the PlayStation 2, the Xbox, the GameCube, and the Game Boy Advance. Again, the Game Boy Advance version is a little different, but we're going to focus on the ones for the major releases of PS2, Xbox, and GameCube. Those are all third-person shooters. And just like the last major entry we had with Nightfire, this one came with its own original theme song. So let's give the theme song for Everything or Nothing a quick listen. Without a pain, it ain't nothing. 
Gotta love the video games with their own original theme songs. Just adding more Bond music to our universe to listen to. This Everything or Nothing release in 2004 is often thought as one of the most cinematic Bonds, and some people even consider it the last Bond movie for Pierce Brosnan. Why is that, you may ask? Well, Pierce Brosnan returned his likeness rights to the game, and this time actually used his own voice. So, for those of you keeping track at home, Timothy Dalton's last appearance as James Bond was in the Genesis game The Duel, and Pierce Brosnan's last appearance for James Bond is in 2004's Everything or Nothing. It also gets its cinematic flavor from its writer. Bruce Feierstein returns once again to work on the script for the video game, so you have an actual Bond writer working with an actual Bond actor, and that's not where it ends. There's some other A-list talent included in the game. You have Willem Dafoe lending his voice talents to it, Judy Dench as M, John Cleese, Heidi Klum, and Richard Keel all appearing in this wonderfully cinematic game. But don't take my word for it. We have Hulst Trent from the Netherlands. I first played uh, Everything or Nothing when I was with my brother on the GameCube. And uh, I got the game. Well, actually, my brother got the game for my father. My brother once uh, asked my father during dinner, Dad, I'd really like this new James Bond game. I think it's really, really cool. My brother's a few years older than me. He's about uh, six or seven years old. And 
Back then, he must have been 12, and I must have been four or five years old. So uh, a few days later, my dad returned from the store, and uh, he took uh, everything or nothing with him. And my brother started to play, and he started to play. And as I was young, and I really looked up to my brothers, I really liked this game that they were playing. And uh, I got really involved because I saw this cool guy, and he was racing beautiful cars, and he was doing awesome things and having all the girls. And I really liked the style that he got. I think one of my most clearest memories is the one racing with uh, Maya in the car, and he has the tie that he also wears in Goldeneye. For some reason, I really like that suit with the tie, and a few minutes later, you even saw him in a bow tie when he's visiting Diablo. So for me as a little boy, it were all those small things that made James Bond to an awesome character, but because I was so young, I didn't even understand it was a, it was a fake character, it wasn't a real person. As I grew up, my brother actually had to tell me from, Gosse, you know he's not a real person, right? I was like, oh no, oh my God, you have to be kidding. I mean, I really thought he was James Bond. For me, Pierce Brosnan was the guy. He was James Bond uh, in those days. So I got to play the game because my brother grew up and we all grew up. But I kept playing and I kept playing and I kept playing. And uh, during those years, and I believe I really was five, six, seven years old when I started playing, it just filled me with such happiness and joy because, as I just said, uh, you have such a cinematic universe with everything and nothing. You have Judy Dench's M, you got John Cleese's Q, and you got the Scotland MI6 uh, location. And as I got the Pierce Brosnan DVDs and VHSs, I saw those characters on the film screen and I also saw them in the game. And I think as a young boy, it really helps you to emerge into the world of the game. Together with the style, I think it sets a really good tone for a fan. And for me, that's why Everything or Nothing is such a great classic Bond game. All right, thank you for that. Hoss Trent from the Netherlands. He's a writer for the JamesBond.nl website. You should check out his stuff. Now, as I mentioned before, there were two major releases in 2004. We've just covered everything or nothing, so I think it's time to get into the other major release, which was GoldenEye Rogue Agent. Now, as usual, I'm going to play the commercial for GoldenEye Rogue Agent. Fair warning, it has this high-pitched screeching sound. For those of you who remember the commercial, basically the Rogue Agent comes out of a building and uses his pistol to put a big scratch down what is presumably James Bond's Aston Martin DB5. So you might need to cover your ears for that scratch sound as he runs his gun down the DB5. But let's give a listen to the commercial for 2004's GoldenEye Rogue Agent. It's good to be bad in Bond's world. Golden Rogue Agent, rated T for Teen. And there you have the commercial for Rogue Agent. It was published by EA. It was available on the PS2, the Xbox, the GameCube, and the Nintendo DS. It is a first-person shooter. And it is quite an interesting little game. An often overlooked James Bond game. Because you don't play as James Bond. You play an ex-MI6 agent who's hired by Goldfinger to assassinate Dr. No. 
if that doesn't grab you as a concept, I don't know what will. So it's an alternate timeline thing where you're in the darker, seedier underworld of espionage, sort of working for the bad guys. It also includes appearances from Pussy Galore, Scaramanga, Zenya on a top, and Odd Job. And here to give us his thoughts and insights is Aaron Bossig from the Hungry Trilobite Podcast. GoldenEye Rogue Agent was released in 2004 and was released on all the major systems available at the time. And if you've heard anything about this game, it was almost certainly something negative. And that was not something that happened later on. That's not revisionist history. It happened almost immediately. And truthfully, my experience was that, yes, nobody liked the game, but the people who didn't like the game had never played the game or had only played it for about five minutes and then tossed it aside. I almost never got that response from people who had actually sat down and played it for a significant period of time. So it really seemed like it was a bandwagon hate. And I'm going to try to make some sense of that for a minute. This was not too long after GoldenEye for the N64, which was one of the biggest Bond games ever, if not the biggest Bond games. It was a beloved game. It was a classic on the system. It was the gold standard for Bond shooters. So the comparison was inevitable. And not only was the comparison inevitable, but you were comparing it with a game of the same name. So you really couldn't avoid people saying, this is less than this game because this game was the best thing ever. And whether GoldenEye for the N64 really was the best thing ever, another question for another day. But I really feel like people just weren't willing to look at GoldenEye Rogue Agent on its own. On its own, it's actually a solid, I would even say very good shooter. It was not revolutionary for the time. There was very little that was truly innovative or groundbreaking, but there's very little wrong with it. You really can't look at the game and say, this was a bad idea. This didn't work. This wasn't fun. I enjoyed this game to no end. So let's get into why. Let's look at how the game fits for a Bond fan, because that's really why we're here. I like the game's story a lot. I find it to be very fitting for the Bond universe, but it doesn't fit in. It's not part of the film canon. It's not part of the video game canon. It really stands on its own. And that's another area where I think it rubs people the wrong way. If you need it fits neatly in with everything else, I'm sorry you're looking in the wrong spot here. But let's look at what is here. In this game, you are playing an MI6 agent who is part of a failed mission, gets kicked out, and gets recruited into the Bond underworld. He ends up being tied in a war between Goldfinger and Dr. No, starts to rise in almost like a mafia movie-style rise to power, which I find to be a very fun premise, and it is really cool to play with. So I like the idea, but as a Bond fan, I look at this and I wonder i feel like the other shoe didn't drop you are playing a character who is rising in the bond underworld looking to be the big boss his gimmick is that he has lost an eye and has put in a cybernetic implant which allows you special powers so you are the big bond villain and you have a messed up eye just go the extra mile and say this is blofeld's origin story because everything else fits but that 
Unfortunately, it's not quite that easy because the game never quite says that. In fact, they actually reference Blofeld elsewhere in the story, so clearly it's not the same person. But when you get that close and you don't go the extra mile, to me, it feels like a missed opportunity. So for that reason, yeah, it's a little disappointing. If you view the Bond movies in a very strict continuity, it also doesn't work because there's various characters there who did not exist at the same time, either because one was killed at one point or the characters are just radically different ages. The game meshes them all together. So you really have to take a very loose view of history to make that make sense, which is unfortunate. Having said that, it does make for some really cool effects. Otherwise, you get to see Dr. No's palace in a much better visual than you saw in the movie. It's really impressive. You get to get a better look at Goldfinger's background, and you get to look at his operation. You do get to see a much more three-dimensional view of the Bond underworld than you would see in the movies. So if you're not happy with the way the story turned out, take a second and look at what's actually there, because you are getting some treats that you don't get elsewhere. So where does this movie stand in the grand scheme of things? Well, there was never a direct sequel made to it. That disappoints me personally, but obviously a lot of people were happy with it just being a weird offshoot from the Bond games and leaving it at that. I would suggest if you do like Bond, give this game a shot. Forget the name on the cover. Just try to play it and see if you'll have a good time because I think you probably will. That will close out the glorious two-Bond game year of 2004. Now let's move right in to 2005. would see the release of one of the more popular games in the James Bond video game series, probably because of the return of Sean Connery. The game, of course, is from Russia with Love. From Russia with Love. From Russia with Love was produced by EA and it was available on the PS2, the Xbox, the GameCube, and the PSP. It is a third person shooter, and Bruce Firestein does return once again to lend his hands to the writing of the story of From Russia with Love. It is based upon the film, but it is also expanded quite a bit. There's a lot more story beyond what is in the From Russia with Love film. But as I said before, most people were excited with the return of Sean Connery to the role of James Bond. So once again, those of you keeping track at home, we now have three of the six Bonds having their final appearance in a video game. Timothy Dalton in The Duel on the Sega Genesis. Pierce Brosnan, Everything or Nothing in 2004. And here in 2005, we have the last appearance of Sean Connery as James Bond reprising his role in From Russia with Love. As a side note, this would be EA's last James Bond 007 game. This is where their license ran out and they did not renew it. Now, usually I will play a trailer from the game, 
But this game has a bit more interesting bonus material on the disc where there's a lot of talk about how the game was made and some cool behind-the-scenes things. So before I get to our first interview, let's listen to some of that behind-the-scenes material that's included on the game. I think the idea of returning to the original 1960s Bond series was something that the team had talked about for a long time, the fans talked about, that we kept hearing people wanted to see. But it really came together this year when we were able to contact and talk to Sean Connery, and he agreed to be a part of it. I mean, once you get him on board and he's helping you out, I mean, that's the start of a great game. I'm absolutely thrilled to be playing James Bond again. May I help you? A dry martini. Shaker, not stout. Having Connery in the game has affected the game's design in the fighting style. He was more of a brawler. You know, he grabbed the characters and threw them to the ground. It'll be interesting to go back to the physicality of one-on-one. We've also used the way that he held the gun and, of course, what he wore. Which subconsciously tells you so much about a movie whenever you see it. In the game, we spent a lot of time making sure the characters came to life. Of course, it goes without saying that special attention was paid to getting Sean Connery just right. It's one of the best-looking digital characters you're going to find in a video game today. The eyes good. The mouth is good. In fact, this looks better than the original. Oh, I'm madly in love with him. There's a real excitement to going back to the roots of James Bond, going back to the early 60s. We're doing something that people thought they would never see, bringing back the original James Bond, Sean Connery. He hasn't been in a video game before. This is my debut. And it's the first time in years that he's played James Bond again. I don't think it's dated at all. To go back to the 60s, this will be something almost like starting all over again. Let's hear from Matt from Darlington. He's at Bond Maps on Twitter. Let's see what he has to say about From Russia with Love. Yeah, From Russia with Love came out on the PlayStation. I remember reading a magazine review of this and getting super excited because this was the return of Sean Connery to Bond. You know, Connery lent his likeness and also did a lot of the voiceovers for the game. So this made it very, very unique in terms of the Bond video game genre. The game does follow uh, the movie quite closely, although there are additional scenes put in. Bond, for example, has the DB5 in Istanbul and he's driving around the certain missions to accomplish on that. And I remember that the game being not the most difficult game I've ever played and, and not being a particularly like massive sort of gamer, but really, you know, does enjoy playing video games. It seemed like it was quite accessible for me in terms of, you know, with a bit of effort, you can complete all the levels and move on and, and progress and complete the game ultimately, which was very, very satisfying, firstly, for me, because as I say, I'm not, not the biggest gamer in the world and I don't really have the time to spend hundreds of hours on these things, finding every uh, single uh, thing. You know, Connery's voice obviously isn't quite the same as it was in the early 60s, but, it, you know, it was pretty cool to be driving around and, and Sean Connery was doing the voiceover and following all the bits from the movie. Obviously, you've got primarily it's a sort of first-person game following Bond around the various scenes of the film, fighting the bad guys and so on, but there's also some driving parts as well. It was kind of unique because of the Connery's thing, but I wouldn't say it was the most spectacular game. I've played much better games as well, but 
I think, you know, because it was James Bond, I'm a big Bond fan. Having all the proper music in the background and hearing Connery's voice, it was good fun. Speaking of Connery's voice, an interesting side note to that game is that Sean Connery came in and did all of his voice recording for the game. And then, sadly, the sound engineer discovered they had lost all of it. So EA had to go back to Sean Connery the next day, sort of hat in hand, like, we lost all your audio. And being the nice guy that he was, he returned and redid it all again for free. So... That's a nice little story around 2005's From Russia With Love. And that will wrap up the year of 2005. And the James Bond games just keep rolling in this era because we're about to hit 2006. In 2006... Well, there was a fair amount of stuff going on in the James Bond film universe because it would see the introduction of Daniel Craig as James Bond in Casino Royale and bring the franchise once again boldly into the public eye. It would also see the release of two games. In 2006, we saw the release of two mobile phone games. Yes, we are still in that era of those mobile phone games and using those to sort of build up a new movie release. So 2006 saw the release of Casino Royale on the mobile phone and James Bond Trivia also on the mobile phone. Now, James Bond Trivia was a very simple game made by Sony on the mobile phone market. It was a simple quiz game made up of about 100 questions. Not much to it. Not much to say about James Bond Trivia other than that, a very basic trivia game available on your mobile phone. Now, 2006 also saw the release of Casino Royale, also made by Sony in the mobile phone market. This one was an action platformer, and it was definitely released to stir up interest in the 2006 release of Casino Royale. Now, if it's a mobile phone game, that can only mean one thing. Let's go to our boy, Luis, from Colombia, and find out a little bit about 2006 Casino Royale on the mobile phone. And the last game of the mobile saga <laughs> was, for me at least, was Casino Royale. I really love that game. Taking into account that we have to wait for the release of Quantum of Solace to get a proper Casino Royale game in consoles, it was the only, I think in my opinion, the only Casino Royale video game experience we had for a long time. Well, the movie was fresh. I had a really good experience with the movie because I won a contest the TV channel made here in Latin America. So I saw the movie before many other people. And I had fond memories of this movie and this game. It's a platform-based game. I think the last time I saw something like that was uh, the Sega Genesis game. The Duel, I think, is the name of the game. I am not very familiar with that that game now. But it's the first time I see Bond moving in platforms, shooting, using gadgets. The extension of the game, I remember the game was very long, actually. 
It was enticing and it rewarded you for stealth uh, activities. It was well conceived. It was a really, really good game. I enjoyed it. I think it could have been a really good game for the Game Boy Advance or probably the earliest Nintendo DS games. It was really, really good. Of course, we got DS games uh, later for the James Bond saga. But, but in general, the Casino Royale was really good. Obviously, I had to erase many things because it was bigger in size. The file size was bigger than the other games. But it was the most pleasant mobile experience I remember. Of course, Hover Chase was good. <laughs> the difference from Hover Chase to, to the Casino Royale one was abysmal. Was, <laughs> it, was, it shows the, the advance of technology between those years. I work with technology. I work with education and technology. And like three years ago, I think, four years ago, we did this kind of uh, IT museum, information technology museum. And I got to bring my, my old B3 phone. I purchased a battery, an aftermarket battery, but it didn't work so well. But I could at least turn the phone on. And I saw the Casino Royale game there, still there. So it was like bringing back memories from those years. It was uh, something very special to me. Once again, sincere thanks to Louise from Colombia for his insights into those obscure games. Thank goodness he's played all of them. And that is going to round out 2006. So now, let's look forward to 2007. Two thousand seven would be that off year between James Bond films. As we await Quantum of Solace, we had but one game to play, but it's a step out from what we might consider a standard James Bond adventure. Two thousand seven would give us a web-based game called Avenue of Death. Avenue of Death was created by Tamba, and like I said, it's a web-based game, Java-based game. You're probably familiar with a lot of those sort of very simple Java-based games that you can play online. Why is this one a little bit different? Because this is the first of the Young Bond tie-in games. The Young Bond book series was now gaining in popularity, written by Charlie Higson, and Avenue of Death was linked to Hurricane Gold by Mr. Higson. So this kind of web-based game was not mass-produced. You basically had to go to their website and then you could play sort of this simple Java game there. But we still thought it was worth a mention since it's sort of a unique James Bond thing. And oh, by the way, it won't be the only one of these web-based Java games based around the Young Bond tie-in books. But with a little more insight into 2007's Avenue of Death, let's, you guessed it, <laughs> hear from our old friend Luis because he's played this one too. I was looking forward to the release of the Young Bond books. I remember that when they were releasing uh, Avenue of Death, they have this kind of flash game on the website. The website, I remember, it was marvelous. It was wonderful because 
the setting of the website was like a desk with objects, and there was not a clear menu that you have to click. Now you have to explore all the environment of the website. So they translate that into the game. Unfortunately, I couldn't play the game that much. Maybe because I think I, at the time I was finishing uh, my university thing, I, I didn't have enough time to play, which is sacrilege to me. But yeah, I, I remember playing like twice or three times. It's the kind of game that you can expect in the Flash era with this kind of cartoonish designs. Obviously, they were based on the artwork designed for the covers and in general. The different elements, as I said before, the website had this kind of in-universe. So most of the artwork was uniform and it was really good. And I remember that it was like a chase. The name of the book is Avenue of the Earth. And uh, the challenge was to point from point A to point B, avoiding obstacles. I also think that probably I didn't play more than that twice or three times because I think it was a little bit frustrating <laughs> because I think that it wasn't that, that easy. And obviously sometimes the controls in these Flash games were not the best. I think that we are all familiar with these kind of games in the earlier 2000s that were eye-catching, but at the time of controlling were a little bit difficult to handle. So that was my experience with Avenue of Death. Thank you again, Louise. I believe we're going to hear from Louise one more time in this episode. But that's going to close up 2007. We're going to move into 2008. Two thousand eight would, of course, be the debut of Daniel Craig's second James Bond film, Quantum of Solace, and it would lead to not one, not two, but three more James Bond video games for us to discuss. Three games come out in two thousand and eight. We get to chat a little bit about another mobile game, and I bet you know that's where Louise comes in, and that's going to be James Bond Top Agent. There's also another web-based game called Shadow War. And then, of course, there's the official big release of the actual Quantum of Solace game. But let's start with the aforementioned James Bond Top Agent. James Bond Top Agent was made by Sony. It was made for your mobile devices. And it was sort of a turn-based fighting style game. If you remember back in these early 2000s, there was an agreement between the Bond production team and Sony Ericsson, and they had a deal together. So if you bought the Sony Ericsson C902 phone back in 2008, it came preloaded with James Bond, top agent. And of course, here to tell us a little bit more about it is Louise for his final appearance on this episode. Because you know if it's mobile, or if it's obscure, we can count on Louis. So let's hear what he has to say about James Bond Top Agent. I was looking for some spy games on my new iPod Touch back then, new. <laughs> so I found some really good games from Gameloft that had this kind of 3D person perspective. They were really nice. 
Assassin's Creed and all this stuff. And I found that there was some game from 2008, 2009 on iOS. It was W7 Top Agent by Sony. I am pretty sure this, this game was created for promotional purposes, considering that was the year Quantum of Solace was released. It involves different elements of the Bond saga, and I really liked the aesthetics of the game, but it's not a third-person shooter, not first-person shooter. It's a very, very different game. It's similar in the way James Bond 007 for a Game Boy was totally different from what people expected. That one was a kind of Zelda-style game, and this one was like rock, scissors, paper game in which you had to use gadgets and weapons in turn-based combats in order to advance the stories. So it was really interesting, a fresh take on the character and the games, something totally unexpected. I was very happy to find this. Also, the music had the Bond theme around. Some mobile games of the era didn't use the music, the Bond theme, so often they they created generic music or generic action music for these kind of devices. So it was really nice, but obviously they give an extra touch with other tunes and other music to fit this kind of, yes, kids game. It's not, it's it's very kid-friendly game. Also, there are some um, elements of violence and weapons and destruction, but in general, it's more like cartoonish rather than real-life simulation. It's something that is very, very weird. But in general, I enjoyed the game. I got it, as I said before, on my iPod Touch. Unfortunately, it's not available any longer because it was created on the previous architecture for iOS devices. But I know that probably you could find some uh, version for Android devices. Actually, it was released originally for Android devices. And yes, now I remember. I remember it came preloaded on the Quantum of Solace tie-in phone from Sony Ericsson. I remember that now. So it was originally released on Android for the Quantum of Solace promotional campaign, and then it was released on iOS for probably the video, the home video release. I experienced the iOS version. Ironically, I used to have uh, Android phones back then, and it was on my only Apple device at the time. But I never look for the original Android <laughs> version of the game. <laughs> anyway, it was really good. It was fun. I think it's, there are four stories. I don't remember exactly. I remember that Joe's appears and I think got job. But I remember there is something with Die Another Day and Goldfinger. I am not pretty sure. But in total, there were like four missions. And I was researching a little bit before I came to, uh, to this <laughs> to this session, and my research was basically having the <laughs> the app checked on the app store again. <laughs> and it says the current version, the one that is um, well available on older devices, is 2.0. So it means that there was only one update after the app or the game was released. So it was a pretty finished product when it was released, something that is not very common these days. You know, they release something and they try to add more content later. And in this case, the game was complete from the first day and probably the the next update just brought some kind of bug correction and fixing some issues. 
Well, I have to say that I didn't uh, beat the game <laughs> because it was interesting. It was a cool take on the character and the franchise. As I said before, there were some cartoonish villains and some cheesy dialogue. I remember particularly in the tutorial section, the Ghetto Blaster from uh, The Living Daylights, I think, is uh, where Q shows uh, Timothy Dalton's Bond, the, the Ghetto Blaster, and he's very excited. So you get to use this Ghetto Blaster against a mannequin who's uh, been your sparring in this session of the opening of the game. But with time, the sequences get too repetitive. Even though the art, the background changes according to the story, the actions tend to be repetitive. Also, you have to plan the, the use of the gadgets and the weapons because there are some with vanuses, there are some that are impaired because of certain environmental things or some counters that we can find in the enemies. But in general, it's a, it's a funny game. It's an interesting take on the character, on the game. The way as the games were trying to create this uh, awareness of the character, to create this new welcome to this era, you know, that they started with Casino Royale. So it was really good to see how Sony tried to use mobile games to promote this new era with Daniel Craig. And they try to continue with other apps and other games. So basically, the Daniel Craig era is the mobile game era, for good or for bad. <laughs> he's been present in our mobile phones since 2008, when there were actually not very smart yet <laughs> phones. But it has been really good to see how it, things have evolved and changed. Unfortunately, that was just at the beginning of his tenure as W7, but now we see that uh, the mobile gaming division or line of business has been abandoned in favor for other ventures. Even very good console like the Nintendo 3DS or the PS Vita never had a James Bond game. It has been left behind in a way. But in general, I enjoyed these games. It was really good to have this kind of interest and, and products. I don't remember, actually, and I would like to, <laughs> if uh, Top Agent was a paid game. I don't remember if it was paid or not. It was preloaded on some Android devices, the, the, the Sony Ericsson devices that were tied into the movie to Quantum of Solace. But I don't remember if I paid for, for the Top Agent game on iOS or it was free just to promote the home video release of Quantum of Solace. If it was free, <laughs> fantastic, because we got a free Bond game with four different stories, with some kind of repetitive <laughs> mechanics, but in general, good. Long gone are those days when we get free games in the James Bond universe. That's something that is remarkable, and it's really good. It would be really nice to have these kind of initiatives come back, but I won't hold my breath for it. <laughs> all right, our final thank you to Louise. He gives us the insights on all those hard-to-find games, but unfortunately, one of the more obscure hard-to-find games that came out also in 2008 was The Shadow War. This is another one of those web-based Java games based on the young Bond books by Charlie Higson. It was made by Six to Start, and it's more of a point-and-click sort of alternate reality game. 
And unfortunately, when it comes to both this game and the aforementioned of Avenue of Death, those websites are no longer in service. So there's really no way to play Avenue of Death or Shadow War at this time, unless someone sort of revives those sites or finds the code and does that. But we at least thought it bared mentioning that there was a second Young Bond game available to play web-based back in 2008. Having said that, let's get to the major release of 2008, which is, of course, Quantum of Solace. There are some at MI6 who think I can't trust you. That you're blinded by inconsolable rage. And motivated by revenge. But your motivation isn't my only concern. What concerns me... Quantum of Solace was made by Activision. Activision has now officially taken over the James Bond video game license from EA. And they went all in on Quantum of Solace for it was available on PlayStation 2, PlayStation 3, Xbox 360, the Wii, the PC, and the Nintendo DS. It's a first-person shooter for the most part. If you had it on the PS2 or the DS, then it was a third-person shooter. And it actually combines the Casino Royale and Quantum of Solace movies into one game. So it's pretty cool in that regard that Casino Royale never really got a big video game release. But if you play Quantum of Solace, you play several of the moments and levels from Casino Royale. So they're well mixed in together. It was a very Call of Duty influence style game. Any gamers who've played Call of Duty will immediately feel the same mechanics used in Quantum of Solace. And here's the cool part. It pretty much features the entire cast of Casino Royale and Quantum of Solace for the voice acting. So Activision came out swinging with their first one. One of my personal favorite things about the Quantum of Solace video game is if you remember in Quantum of Solace when they're using the sort of tabletop computer, it has an aesthetic to it that's interesting and memorable. For the majority of the releases of Quantum of Solace, the video game, the main menus and all that have that same exact aesthetic as the computer that's shown in the movie. And I thought that was a real neat detail for them to nail down. And I really appreciated that. And one final interesting tidbit before we get to our interview, Quantum of Solace, the video game had its own theme song and it's not the same theme song that was used in the Quantum of Solace film. The video game features a song called Nobody Loves You by Carly, and it's a little divisive because out there in the Bond community, some people actually like the theme song to the video game better than the theme song to the film. But you know what? I'm going to play it and you decide.
There you have Nobody Loves You by Carly. Do you like it better than Another Way to Die? Hmm, that's up to you. I'm a big fan of that Carly song, so it's pretty tempting. But enough of my thoughts. Let's get to the thoughts of a listener of the show. We have Chris from Instagram's British Bond Addict. At that point, my focus on video games had kind of been going towards Nintendo for a little bit. I've been having kind of a renaissance. And I had Nintendo Wii and I didn't have any shooting games. I was kind of getting an urge for one. I uh, had all the PS2 games, of course, but, you know, when you're mid-teenagers, if it's like, oh, two or three years old, God, who wants to do anything about that? So Quantum of Solace came out in 2008 and there was, the, of course, the video game tie-in that went along with it. And I picked it up. I went down to the shop after work. I finished um, at the hotel, went down. Spent my hard-earned cash, picked it up, went home. My pants were out, which is fantastic, so I had the entire afternoon to play it. I sat down, and the first thing I remember is quite a basic menu screen. Um, nothing stands out too much, but then some really impressive graphics of for a cutscene. And I'd recently got a Wii, and I was trying to defend it from my friends who picked up Xbox 360s going, no, the graphics aren't too bad, and look, you can do motion control with your hands. It's fantastic. And the cutscene turned up, and I was like, wow, the graphics for this must be immense. This is incredible. Hello? Mr. White? Yes, who's this? I later realised it was a compressed version of the PS3 graphics, but don't tell younger me about that. Then the game kicked off, and then suddenly took a nosedive in terms of graphical quality, but it hooked me. Again, as most Bond games just seem to for some reason, I was actually quite into it. The Bond music starts blaring, you start off as Daniel Craig, you're in uh, White's Garden... And it actually gives you quite a nice idea of how Casino Royale ends and the bit before Quantum of Solace's car chase. So you run around the gardens, you go through the boats, there's the classic explosions, there's my favourite gimmick in a Bond game where you shoot somebody on a building, they fall down and open up a new path for you into a cellar, which is superb. Everything starts exploding, huge dramatic finish. But then the bit that really sold me is White's trying to uh, crawl away out of a helicopter and you're doing this whole nice James Bond cool monologue. And all of a sudden, a bad guy out of the corner of your eye points his gun, and Craig's rather janky model turns, shoots, and it does this its own kind of gun barrel effect, like the beginning of Casino Royale. I think we should go somewhere a little more quiet. And at that bit, I was like, "Wow, this is this is Bond games in the next generation. I love it." Then the game kind of took a slow bit for a while. Sienna level was quite good. Then the opera level was quite fun, quite sneaky. I always particularly love stealth in Bond games. That's always been a real thing that like sticks out to me because most first-person shooters, third-person shooters don't have an element like that. And if they do, it's kind of just a gimmick. And the airport level did that beautifully, had some great, great moments. But then it kind of became a bit flat, a bit samey. I was getting a bit sort of, oh, this is all quite repetitive. And then it kind of flashed back into Casino Royale, which at the time was one of my favourite Bond films. Still definitely up there. I had no idea that was happening whatsoever. I'd read no reviews, and it was possibly the greatest surprise I think I've had in a modern video game. One of the best surprises I had for a while back then, because all of a sudden, I'm doing that awesome parkour scene at the beginning of Casino Royale. And I'm thinking, wow, this is a this is a great flashback to have this one level. And then it just goes through the entire game. I was thrilled. I was like, wow, two games for the price of one. What a win. And as a result, it made the other parts of the game seem better. <laughs> I don't know how artificial that is of me or how shallow it makes me seem, but it made the whole game better just for having that aspect. 
and it's clearly for me the standout part of the game. It's the bit I revisited most. I was still at the stage where if it's a game I liked, I just went back and played it over and over and over, tried to get better. But it also introduced me to online gaming for the first time. Now, I know the Wii isn't exactly remembered as a competitive console, but there were still people playing games online back then. And to go around these mildly Bond-themed maps was fantastic. I think it was done better in games like Bloodstone and games on different consoles, but it was still enough to make that game stand out to me again. As a result, I played the game for hours. Like I'd always practice after I got home from school or home from work. I'd practice on the individual levels. Then I'd go online for an hour, see how I did, go back and practice again, assuming it made some sort of a difference, but they're not at all correlating whatsoever. And yeah, as a result, it's just one of my regular Wii library for a very long time. Everyone kind of cites the controls saying, oh, how can you do shooting on a, um, a Wii game? But actually, when you get used to it, it kind of adds a real level of immersion to an extent. Because it's not just holding a trigger button, it aims for you, you fire. You actually feel like you're making the movements, strangely. Of course, what you see on screen and what you're doing in person is two very different actions. And I'm not going to lie, the aiming down the sights on a Wii, did it really work too well? It would have been better if the camera zoomed in slightly like it did in the old-fashioned games, Goldeneye, for example. But as a result, as an overall package, I really enjoyed it. And when I revisited it on the the higher-end console, shall we say, a couple of years later, I was actually quite disappointed that it didn't have something of the charm that the Wii game had. Absolutely loved it, played it to death, and <laughs> I'm probably going to revisit it now after this conversation. <laughs> Thank you for that, Chris. And ladies and gentlemen out there in podcast listening land, we have reached the end of disc three of this series. The Digital 007, a look back at James Bond in video games. Because 2009 didn't have any James Bond video game releases. But this certainly was an interesting time between 2000 and all the way up to 2009. Because as you heard, there was a ton of mobile games. And while mobile games aren't quite done with James Bond yet, there's only going to be a couple of more to come. And they definitely had their heyday in this 2000 to 2009 era. And of course, this is where we see the departure of both Pierce Brosnan and Sean Connery in their final roles as James Bond, and they just both happen to be in video games. So definitely an interesting era, 2000 to 2009. Of course, I want to thank the folks who made this episode possible. They include Joe Slepsky, Joe November, of course, Michael from Urbana, Eric from Philly, Bernsey NYY from YouTube, our old friend Frank McNeely, Caleb Smith, who could forget Luis from Ibagué, Colombia, Zach and Wynn, Hostrentz, Aaron Bossig from the Hungry Trilobite Podcast, Matt from Darlington, who's at Bond Maps, and Chris, who is at British Bond Addict. We appreciate you guys contributing to our journey. I, of course, am Jared Albrecht, the yard sale artist. And I'm happy to be doing this series for the On Her Majesty's Secret Podcast Network. Thanks for listening. I'll see you back here for the fourth and final volume of The Digital 007, a look back at James Bond and video games. And as I always do, I will leave you with the original music that was composed just for this audio documentary series by our old friend Joe November. Here is his track, Smirsh, LOL, some James Bond music with a video game flavor. And I'll play the whole track as we leave this disc, and I'll see you on the next one.